So you know how sometimes in life you feel that you have nothing else to offer in a particular position? That perhaps it's time to move on and you're contemplating on whether you should make the move? Well, that was the case for today's guest. After 10 years in a job that he was good at, in a job that he was passionate for, he said to rediscover himself and trusted his instinct. It wasn't easy, and he may even say that he took a slight step back for a few years. But now he has a whole new set of skills and a new role as an executive director in one of the most respected contractors of the Middle East. My name is Angelos Nicolau. I'm your host at Building Leaders, and I'm joined by Mihaly Solomondos from our team. Today we're speaking with Mr. Kipa Seman, Executive Director of Tamas Projects. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Mr. Kivak, thank you so much for accepting our invitation to have a talk with us today. We're really excited to be speaking with you. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. I mean, thank you for your interest in my story. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. And just as a side note, drop the mister. Just call <laughs> yes, me by my first I name. will. You did mention <laughs> that. It's less formal and puts me a little bit at ease when going through the, the podcast, if you don't mind. <laughs> and, and like I told you before we started the podcast, I'm pretty impressed with what you guys are doing. I think you're touching on something very unique in the industry in terms of the format of what you're trying to do. And I wish you all the best in this adventure of yours. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that. Yeah, we started this because we want to bring some positivity in the industry. Yes, it's, it's good to talk about COVID. It's good to talk about recovery, but it's perhaps good to be talking about some of the positive things that are happening and, and to get inspired by, by people's stories. And these are the stories that we listen to as well to get inspired when things perhaps are not as great as they used to be. So why don't we get started from where you're from? So you're from Lebanon and I think yes, I got I a, a little a little bit sidetracked because when I went on your on your profile, I saw Tripoli Evangelical School and mm. I assumed that it was Libya. And then mm, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a Tripoli in Lebanon, for those who don't know. Yes, it's it's probably I would argue it's the original Tripoli. Uh-huh. It, it dates all the way. It was called Tripolis, the Tri-Gate City. Yeah. And it dates all the way back to the Greco-Roman era. Great. So you studied civil engineering in your home country, in Lebanon? Correct. Correct. I studied well, what... uh, civil engineering at the University of Belaman. It's, uh, it's a university that was that's, uh, has strong ties to the Belaman Monastery um, in Lebanon. And it was uh, quite a ride for me there. I learned a lot. I uh, obtained my bachelor degree there in civil engineering in uh, 1999, 2000. Uh, and then I finished my master's degree in uh, 2002. And you also have a minor in hydrology and water resources. And that's yes, really interesting true. because one of the hardest subjects that every civil engineer talks about during their tenure is hydraulics and anything that has to do hydraulic engineering, anything that has to do with water, but you went ahead and got some extra courses there as well. It was, it was the easy choice. It was either that or plates and shells and uh, fourth degree differential equations. So (laughs) (laughs) I chose, I chose the hydraulics and and water, but to be honest, it was uh, one of my passions. It, It still remains one of my passions. Yeah. The mechanics of it, the engineering, behind it fascinates me always and it's the resource of the future 
Yeah. I think only on a podcast about construction, you'll hear someone say that their passion is hydraulic engineering. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then you, your master's was in construction management and civil engineering. True. Did you want to say move into the management circle a little bit? Did you did you see that early on? No, actually, I, I did not. I was just guided by some good mentors at the time, and they saw that there are certain characteristics um, that were innate in me at the time. And they guided me towards um, this course of action. I, I had no, I wanted to sit behind the desk and design and go to the field and see how dams are being built and how water networks are being built and how bridges are being built. My passion was transportation and, and water and, and the engineering behind them and the massive efforts on the field that brought to bear some significant icons, um, such as the San Francisco Bridge, uh, the Hoover Dam and so on and so forth. I, I had no inclination of what construction management is or what project management is or what program management is. Yeah. Construction management is one of the latest subjects under the civil engineering umbrella and studying it in the early 2000s, I'm sure it has some differences, the definition of it at least, at that time than what it has today. And you've been deeply involved with the industry. I'm wondering, do you see any of these major differences, something that are indicated? Um, um... You're absolutely right. The principles remain unchanged. In particular, the technicalities of it remain unchanged mm -hmm. in terms of knowing your resources, forecasting, understanding your schedule, managing your productivity, the principle of construction management and the KPIs associated with that and, and the means and methods that you use remain unchanged. I think what changed are the tools that would allow you to do all your analytics and your forecasts. We, we're not, we now live in a very in a hyper digital age uh, where everything is connected and uh, definitely online tools, connectivity tools contributed a lot to advancing the way construction management is implemented. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that the key factor in construction management that is not taught and should be taught and remains, I would say, a little bit ignored is the human factor, the people factor. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we are an industry that is very people centric and that is very human resource centric and learning how to manage and handle and deal with the various aspects of the individuals working within a construction management team remains a challenge. And I don't believe that there are a lot of people out there who are focusing on this aspect. There are very few. Mastering this, understanding it is definitely a force multiplier to anybody working in the industry for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I started studying civil engineering at Penn State University, and then I switched to construction management. As soon as I realized that there was a bachelor's degree in that, um, that's what I wanted to do from the very beginning. I didn't know about it, you know, plain and simple. I had no idea about that construction <laughs> management existed <laughs> until I went yeah. to the U.S. Until after a year, I was studying civil engineering and I was never taught anything about people, anything about teams, anything people-centric. And frankly, the worst part is not that I wasn't taught anything about it, is that no one was even talking about it. And mm -hmm. I think you make, you make a great point. We are a very people-centric industry. Construction sites are so complex that the only thing that's keeping it together, you know, we're one of the least digitized industries in the world. We're one of the least productive industries in the world. Really, the only True. thing that's keeping it together are the people. 
True. And it, it seems that we might perhaps not be putting the right foundations right from the beginning in order to get people to start thinking about that. Do you think that, do you ever see a construction industry having a stronger culture? Let's say the kind of culture that you see um, the high-tech companies, uh, Facebook and Google, taking care of their uh, people in that way? I hope so. To me, my, I have some observations in, in that regard. I think focusing on people is connected to the level of maturity of, uh, of the company itself, right? Mm -hmm. And because there's this concept out there that if you have an engineering degree, and you understand a little bit about the various trades of the industry, you can open up your own construction company and start getting contracts and building. So the amount of construction companies have exponentially grown in number, and it left little for the companies in the industry who have been around for 40, 50, 60 years. Now they have to compete with companies who are two, three, five years old. And, and at the same time, they needed to maintain and grow a specific culture and, and maintain talent within that culture. At the same time, they needed to keep the lights on. So there's always this friction between maintaining the talent and winning work. And yeah. talent costs money, right? So there's this conflict between being competitive and while at the same time maintaining a positive culture and keeping the individuals who have been with these companies for quite some time within that company to make sure that knowledge is properly being transferred, the culture of the company is maintained. Very few companies nowadays do that. And that is one of the biggest challenges of the industry as well. But culture is very important in the construction industry. Loyalty is, is a key performance indicator, I would say. There's a lot of loyalty issues uh, within construction companies, but it goes both ways. You have to be loyal to the people who work for you so that they can reward you with loyalty back. Yeah. Um, what does what does loyalty mean for you, Kifa, from a management uh, perspective? How can you be loyal to your people? What does this mean? That's a, that's a great question. And this is one of the questions that I ponder a lot. Loyalty can mean many, many things. And I'm not really going to, I'm not oriented towards blind loyalty, right? To me, that is a folly to think of. But what loyalty means in from the way I look at things is that when you mentor a specific individual in your company and you give them opportunities to grow and you allow them to fulfill their ambition, in times of need, you would require them to support you as a company, as a brand. And that is the type of loyalty I'm looking for. There are people who just come in, ride the wave of a specific company or brand, learn and glean information at the same time being given opportunities to grow. And then as soon as opportunity arises to transition into a specific role within another brand for purely financial incentive, and albeit a minor financial incentive, they just jump ship. And they, they would forget about the years spent with that specific company, as well as the potential opportunities they are leaving behind. Makes sense. Do you think that this has a spillover let's say, towards the customers of the construction industry or partners? Do you think that this is one of the contributing reasons why we have this lack of transparency, why we have this lack of trust as well, that we sometimes don't invest enough to cultivate loyalty within our own companies in construction? It depends on, it depends on the culture. I, I do know a few companies that invest a lot in that, and they are highly rewarded. At the end of the day, 
individuals, professionals will do their job eventually, right? It's that extra 5, 10, 15% that would distinguish you from others that you're looking for. That additional effort, that additional ingenuity, that additional flair of genius from, that can come from anywhere within the company, irrespective of the role and the position. That insight into making a certain process more efficient or that ability to integrate seamlessly several processes or several methodologies that would give you an edge on a competition. It can come from anywhere. And it's that 5 to 10% that you're looking for over and above the day job. So a lot of companies focus on that. A lot of companies cultivate that. And that's exactly what makes them profitable and gives them an edge in the market. And you can only get that from people who trust the leadership, trust the vision of the company, and know it in their hearts and minds that when push comes to shove, the whole operation is is focused on profitability and loyalty as well. If the message to people is a message of opportunism, it's more opportunistic short term, then people will treat you the same. But if the message is we're in it for the long run, uh, we're not looking to just be profitable on a specific job or just be profitable in a specific market sector, but we're here to build something larger than the sum of us. And then that would make definitely a difference. This is so interesting to see that it happens on every level. Companies that are small like ours, sometimes we get, let's say, sidetracked by the fact that you know you wish you had more capital to move. You wish you had more of a brand, more of a movement. You wish you had more equipment, more technology. But it's so interesting to see that what truly makes a difference is what it comes down to people skills and how you treat your customers and how you treat each other. And you True. translated that directly to, to profits, which I think makes a lot of sense. Look, I, I learned this again. I was very fortunate with the mentors that came through during my career. One of my mentors, he passed away now. His name, his name was Terry O'Brien uh, when I was with Parsons. Hmm. Terry was a Vietnam veteran. And um, for some reason, again, he kind of chose me amongst a few others to kind of mentor at the time. And I'm talking around, this was around 2007. And he used to give us leadership classes after work. And he drew a pie chart. And he broke that pie chart into three parts. The largest part of the pie chart was people. The second largest was customers. And the last was the company itself, if you know what I mean. And he said, focus on your people. Focus on your customers, and your company will be fine. You know, it's really hard, and especially now, right? We have COVID, uh, we have other economic factors that are pushing companies to the limit, to the brink of collapse. And it's so tough to be able to focus on your financial objectives as well as your people. How do you do that as an executive director? Do you set time aside to do that? Or do you start with that from the beginning? Is that your starting plan? Let's clarify what taking care of your people means. Taking care of your people doesn't mean that you just sacrifice the profitability of the business to maintain certain talents within the company. That's, that's not necessarily taking care of people. Sometimes taking care of people is to give them enough coaching and advice so that 
they can find better opportunities for themselves in times of crisis. So there are a lot of ways where you can contribute to the well-being of the people who matter in the company so that you can leave a certain positive legacy in their minds. And for me, that's what I try to do. Let's take a practical example. Let's say that I have a specific talent that I believe is, is going to have an excellent future. And it just so happened that I cannot maintain that specific talent and, and I need to move on. They need to move on. We, we need to part ways for some reason during these difficult times. First of all, I make sure that there's a transparent dialogue and discussion. It's not just a transactional relationship where you write a termination letter and you send it to that particular individual. Engage in a dialogue. See if you can help support their transition elsewhere. See if you can place them in other companies utilizing your relationship and your network. See if you can give them a letter of recommendation. See if there's anything you can do along those lines to ease the impact of the situation, whether it be an unlimited leave until they find something, whether it be finding a certain role for them within the company, albeit not necessarily at the same pay level, just to you know support them to the best you can, coaching them, helping them acquire new skills to integrate with it within their tool set so that they can excel in the future. It all comes into play, if you know what I mean. You don't necessarily yeah. have to sacrifice the PL. Yeah. So you've been all over the construction industry, right? You've been on the consulting side, you've been on the owner side, on the contractor side. Can True. you talk to us a little bit about your career and how it progressed? Um, you started off right from the consulting side, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes, I started with a small consulting firm um, in Lebanon. It actually belonged to one of my professors at the university. And I started working there real early towards the last year, year and a half of my bachelor's degree as a trainee. And then uh, I continued working for the firm until I graduated with my master's degree. And then I decided to move on abroad, went to Saudi Arabia, worked with uh, steel fabricator, prefabricated buildings, Zamel Steel. Hmm. Uh, learned a lot there, great company to work for. But I had my uh, site set for Dubai a long time ago. Yeah, And I was trying to find ways uh, to get to the UAE uh, because at the time, the glamour, the unique projects, the, the size and scale of what's, what was going on at the time in the UAE and, and to a certain extent is still going on today, you know, yeah. it is an attraction for any engineer. So that, I decided, that was the real you know, boom, right? That was a real... So yeah, all exactly. the photos you see, Dubai before, Dubai after, <laughs> that That's was true. the time where this happened, 2000, true. True. early 2000s. True. So uh, in 2004, I landed in Dubai. I was fortunate enough to find a job at DXP, Dubai Airport. Yeah. And I worked for another great company called Daryl Handasa there for a couple of years. And then in 2006, um, one of my managers moved on from Dubai Airport and came to Abu Dhabi Airport with Parsons, and he um, offered me a job. That was quite a transition for me. I probably spent 2006 all the way to 2017 with some intermittent, um, I would say, experiments in between with Parsons. Yeah. And that was uh, a uh, tribute my accelerated career to. And then from there, I moved on from Parsons in 2017. I had a, my sights set on the Mac, but due to some personal issues at the time, I wasn't able to continue there. I moved on to Al Nasser Contracting, uh, which is an excellent company. 
it's probably one of the best kept secrets here in the UAE. Uh, I spent a couple of years there, and then the opportunity came with Tamas to have um, an executive seat at the table, which I couldn't refuse. Yeah. And I moved on from there. I have so many questions right now <laughs> that are going through my right. head because this career, this career is incredible. First of all, uh, I'm not uh, sure about that, but let's talk about I, it. As someone, you know, with with high aspirations, let's say, looking at your trajectory and types of companies that you worked with, it's really impressive. And I'm a bit jealous, to be honest. Well, <laughs> I'm jealous of you, so it's <laughs> going to Daral Handasa. Is that a, a general contractor, or is no Daral Handasa is part of Dark Group? It's a global consultancy firm, engineering consultancy firm. But Dark Group now is expanding into multiple industries. If you go to ENR listings, Daral Handasa and Dark Group are usually out of the top twenty. Hmm. So it's quite an impressive outfit. I learned a lot. It's truly a school for engineers, let me put it that way. Yeah. And that was the time where you worked at airports? That's That was the time when I got introduced to the aviation industry mm. and kept working in the aviation industry all the way until 2017. Does your passion about hydraulics have anything to do with your passion about aviation? No. Considering how they're, they're closely the two are related? Passions. They're different okay. passions. Okay. I was trying to figure out whether it was a uh, an academic spillover, academic love between the two, no, uh, physics or... It was pure chance. Okay. It, if you ask a lot of aviation professionals, they'll tell you that they just fell into the industry. They just fell into it. There was no premeditated um, focus on whether or not they want to get into that industry. Yeah. It was pure chance. But again, I was very lucky to fall into that industry. I learned a lot. It expanded my intellect, it expanded my knowledge, and, and I owe that industry a lot. Is it much more high stakes, much more focused on quality than your general construction buildings working in the construction aviation sector? I would say it's more mission critical. And, and what I mean by that is any airport is a major pillar in the GDP generation of any country. Hmm. It's also the gateway to any state or country or city. So working in airport development, you're not just there for the technical part, you're there to accomplish a critical mission for that particular government, that particular city, state, or country. And knowing and understanding that gives you the mindset of urgency and diligent care in everything you do. Do, do they take any extra precaution when hiring engineers for those positions? Are there things that they look for as far as, you know, the candidates being more detail-oriented uh, in for order sure. to work in that for sector? Sure. For sure. And it's very specific when you're looking, for example, if you're building, working on the airfield where airplanes navigate, whether they land, take off, taxi, park, you need yeah. special experts and experience to be able to handle that. Um, if you're working within the terminal buildings, uh, active terminal buildings, you need people who understand the processing of passengers, who understand the sequence of what happens, who understand the interconnectedness of the various systems within these buildings and can operate and navigate accordingly. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Fah, how do you factor in, you know, we talk about all these results driven and detail oriented approach to construction when it comes to airports and aviation. 
How do you factor in the people's approach that you mentioned earlier? How do you balance these two when a large part of your work it is to deliver the actual thing with the utmost quality? Yes, that's very important. That is the benefit you get from working with a company like Parsons, right? Because you are not just hiring from the market. You can go back deep into the company's resources and reach out to existing expertise that is already integrated with the company culture. So bringing in a new team member on board and onboarding them to a specific project isn't that of a difficult operation because they know the company, they know the culture, they know the rules of engagement, and they will work within that framework. So that's one aspect of it. That's very important. The other aspect of it is team synergy. So managing teams and, and selecting people, in addition to the expertise, in addition to the commonalities of working for the same company, you need to start now looking at the synergies between individuals, between your design team and your construction team, between the age groups, between the background, between the cultural synergies that you might have. All that comes into play. And you really need the right guidance and the right training to be able to do that. And I, for one, was very, very lucky to have had the ability to go through these, these trainings and, and these modules at the time and being mentored accordingly to make the right selection most of the time. Was it different at the time in the UAE as it is now in terms of the diversity of the teams? Did you, like you said, you had your sites on Dubai, many individuals from many countries had their sites on Dubai. And uh, as an expat myself, I see a bit of a difference in diversity than from now. Do you notice any of that uh, happening? Dubai, Abu Dhabi and the UAE remains a very diverse environment. Hmm. Uh, there's a multitude of cultures uh, that all operate seamlessly and work together here. And it's been one of the unique things about this country. And it, it added a lot of enriching experiences to all of us. In terms of the level or the density of uh, that diversity, I still see it as the same, albeit just probably maybe a little bit of change of backgrounds, right. um, but you still have massive expat communities here from Europe, from the US. You have a lot of expat Arab communities here. There are a lot of successful Indian subcontinent communities here. Recently, yeah. you have a lot of uh, Chinese companies uh, establishing foothold here in the UAE. So the, the diversity is there. It may be changing the sectors within the industry. Um, you're seeing a lot of Western expat diversity now in the oil and gas and, and probably um, in, uh, in other aspects, high tech, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, while the, um, the traditional construction, you, you're seeing a lot of Arab expat diversity and Indian subcontinent diversity. You're seeing a little bit of Western expats walking away from the construction industry. But that's just a personal observation. Yeah. But all all, I would say the diversity still exists. Yeah. It's like traveling without traveling, really, when you live there. That's very um, true. And do you enjoy traveling? I mean, obviously, you have this love for the aviation sector. I do. I do. I was fortunate enough to probably crisscross the world when I was working for Parsons. I uh, spent a lot of time in, in North America, in the US. I've probably visited, I would, I would say, 30 of the 50 states. Wow. I did a lot of traveling to uh, Southeast Any Asia. Any favorite state? I would say a couple of favorites. California, 
because that's where we were headquartered. And uh, I have a lot of family and friends there. And uh, I would say uh, Georgia. I love Georgia and Texas. Really? Everybody who's been there says that. And I was in the U.S. for six years and I never been there. And I'm kicking myself in the head for it. So you're at Parsons for almost 10 years in the aviation sector. And then you make the jump and you go to the owner side. And not just the owner side, but one of the most prestigious and exclusive well-known property development companies in the world right now, uh, True. the Mac. What prompted you to do that? I think over the years, there was a little bit of courting going on between myself and, and the Mac. And it, ju it just happened to be the right time for me to, to kind of explore something new, mm -hmm. diversify my experience. And it came right around the time where I felt that, you know, I, I wasn't able to contribute much anymore to where I was. I thought that it would be a good idea to explore other opportunities. And um, I decided to explore that option. And how was that? Did you... Oh, it was, it was did a great... You feel, did you feel um, that you're on the top of the world, you know, coming from the consulting side? Now yeah. you're the boss. You know, wherever you go, you're the boss. Well, there's only one boss in the Mac. So that, let's <laughs> leave it at that. But um, as it should be. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, it was a very short stint because at the time I, I faced some personal challenges that I needed to attend to mm. at a family level. So I, I had to take a sabbatical. And after that sabbatical, like any company, they couldn't necessarily maintain that role. They needed someone else to take care of business. So we just had to part ways. But the Mac is, is a very unique company. It's very entrepreneurial in nature. A lot of people have made their careers in the Mac. It's quite an experience selling exclusive real estate, developing and selling exclusive real estate to the world. And I think uh, it's been one of the success stories um, of the UAE, if not the world, for sure. Yeah. You sort of took a, a more business-like trajectory, you know, after leaving Parsons, you know, presumably taking all of that experience that we had from the consulting side, then, you know, your short stay at the Mac, and then you led business development in what you called one of the hidden gems of the Middle East, Al Nasser Contracting. Did you seek this career change on purpose or did it just happen? Well, it, between 2015 and 2017, my role in Parsons changed. I was contributing a lot to the business development cycle of the aviation industry, particularly developing the business in Southeast Asia, as well as a little bit of participation in North America and heavy participation in the Middle East here in the region. And I discovered that I had a knack for it. You know, I, I can bring the technical experience, the skill sets, the technical knowledge and the background, and I can package it in a way that can convince customers and clients to hire us. I also deployed my honed analytical skills to kind of understanding market trends and, and trying to understand how markets pivot and change and where the next opportunities might be. So I was doing that in Parsons and um, Al Nasser came along. Um, there was great synergy with the leadership team there. They wanted that type of skill set at the time. And um, I, I wanted to work with these people, with these individuals. They're very unique. They have an excellent company culture. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to work with them and for them. So I, I carried that expertise into the company and contributed the best I could. When you say excellent company culture, what, what do you have in mind when you say something like that? Uh, what I mean by that is 
it's a tightly knit outfit. For example, the average tenor at the company is 10 years. Mind you, um, today, Al-Nasser is, is a very young outfit. The average age, I would say, is about between 35 to 40 within the company, right? Mm. They've assembled together uh, an excellent group of executives uh, from the CEO all the way to all, all the CXO levels. They are very loyal to the people who have contributed to the success of the company. They know their people by name. They know who their families are. They always care about what's going on in the personal lives of the employees, most of them. They're very humble people, let's put it that way. Yeah. You can feel a level of uh, humility within the company. They have a, an open door policy. The executive team earned their way there. They actually earned their stripes and climbed the ranks. And I think the way they approach their craft, the way they approach their reputation, the way they care about their reputation, the way they care about their customers is very, very unique for a locally bred company compared um, to others as well. Kifar, when you uh, mentioned the open door policy, because you also mentioned earlier the importance of, of mentorship, coaching, caring about the well-being of your people. If I was an engineer working for Tamas, would I be, have access to you at any time? Would I be able to have a meeting with you at any time I wanted? Yes, you would. In that case, what happens when you have 500 employees? What about the CEOs that have 500 people and that would turn you know, their schedule into a little bit of a mess? What would you say in that situation? And how do you deal with this yourself? Well, if anyone asks to see a CXO, at least if I want to see a CXO or, or an executive, I should have a particular reason, right? So the first five people who come to see me would definitely have a message to carry back, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all about sending the message that, yes, it's an open door policy. You can come and discuss with the CXO or with the executive a particular subject, but it's not going to be an easy conversation, <laughs> right? So yeah. you have to ask yourself whether or not you want to have that conversation and what kind of outcome you want out of that conversation. And then decide. So open door policy doesn't mean that we're hanging out. An, an open door policy exists to discuss business, to discuss anything that's connected to the business. It could be a personal issue. It could be a technical issue. It could be a business issue, but it all revolves around the company. And if you want to come and have a dialogue, please do come and have a discussion. But you need to understand that you're not having a discussion with uh, appear you're having a discussion with an executive and you better not waste the time with that executive. Do you think that such policies sometimes hold companies back from becoming huge? Do you believe that if you have on your sites to become the next AECOM, the next Parsons, do you believe that you can maintain these open door policies, knowing people by name, or that it's impossible and that you should just focus on being super efficient and super profitable and fire and hire as you go along, as long as you keep growing? I, I don't believe that you cannot humanize any company, no matter how that company grows or how big a company evolves and grows. But you also have to be able to train, coach, and delegate and embed that culture across the hierarchy of the company, right? So if a particular engineer on a job has an open door policy with uh, his or her project manager and they can have a dialogue with them. Why would they want to come see me? Right? Yeah. So 
it's not just about my open door. It's about the open door policy and humanizing the conversation, humanizing the business across the hierarchy of the industry. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that we have to take the dialogue away from the business. It is a business dialogue. It always will be a business dialogue. But at least the door is open because if you don't have an open door, if you can't listen to the problems and issues within the business, you're going to be blindsided. And the more the issues fester, the more they'll become difficult to address and handle in the future. So the purpose of an open door is to keep your finger on the pulse. And if you don't keep that finger on the pulse, sooner or later, something's going to you know, fall through the cracks and it's going to catch you uh, down the road and it would have a more detrimental impact to the business than had you identified it earlier and addressed it earlier. And talk to us a little bit about Tomas and your role there. For those who don't know, describe your company and what your position is there now. Tomas is a very specialized uh, company here in the UAE. They have a lot of infrastructure specialty and a lot of aviation specialty as well as ITS or traffic system specialty. It's been around for 40 years. Uh, it's done a lot of quality work. The unique thing about Tamas is that it's a company that can punch above its weight, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It takes on very challenging, complex jobs and efficiently executes and delivers them. My role as the executive director, I handle the infrastructure business of the company. There are two divisions. There's the infrastructure division and there's the aviation and ITS division. Myself, I handle the infrastructure side of the business. I'm responsible for the P&L of that division, uh, whether it's business development, acquiring new projects, executing and delivering, maintaining profitability, growing talent, identifying talent. That all falls within my remit. I participate in what we call the executive committee. The executive committee has the three directors of the company and the the, the president and CEO. Mm. Uh, That's basically... um, a quick debrief about what I do today and the company I work for. Sounds very exciting. And we wish you the best of luck there. It's a thank you. It's an exciting company and it's an exciting role as well. And it is um, exciting, it is challenging, and, and that's what I always look for. I'm also grateful for the opportunity. This did not just land on my lap. It's definitely after a very long and challenging career and hopefully uh, a positive legacy that I've left around wherever I went. I would hope to continue leaving this positive legacy behind and you know, positively contributing to uh, wherever I am. And right now I'm in Tamar. I believe that working with my colleagues there, we will make an impact for sure. Uh, Was there a particular area that you would focus on, Kifa, and would that be uh, related to people that you mentioned earlier? Is that the kind of signature you leave with every uh, new position that you go to? What what is the one thing that that you would say you bring to the table beyond your your expertise and, and your technical acumen? I think to me, the ultimate success is to make myself redundant. And if you take Kifa out of the equation, the business will not get affected. If I can get there, I would be very successful. Um, There's a great book, and I highly recommend, uh, if you haven't read it, it's called Good to Great. Yeah, I've read that. (laughs) In one of the very first chapters, it talks about just that, just about how humble executives that take companies from being good to being great are. And I remember one line from this book that said, one of the executives had told the authors, 
when I leave the company, I would love to see the company and say, I work there too. And that's a big difference from people that say, I built that. And, I, and, I, and I'm getting you know, throughout the interview. You, you can say both. At the end of the day, there is no harm in saying I've built that. But I think it's more powerful saying I've built that and now I can watch it grow without my intervention. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So to me, there are five key lessons that I have learned that I would always operate within. It's knowing your people, eating last, drawing fire away from them if you can becoming redundant, and always show, don't tell. Hmm. Now, you're super passionate about the construction industry, and this is a question that we'd like to ask all of our guests, and it's um, how would you like to see construction in 10 years from now? Definitely more efficient, more digitized, focusing on what matters in terms of execution excellence, and focusing on customers as well. Very few companies within the engineering construction have within their core values, a customer focus. Yeah. So if we can digitize, improve uh, efficiency and execute with excellence with focus on our customers, I think that would be a significant leap in, in 10 years, for sure. How would a general contractor look like that focuses on their customers? What would that look like? That is one of the challenges that we as general contractors face day in and day out. But what we can do is we can strive to become a contractor of choice. Albeit that's very difficult to do with the services that we offer. Most of our services are commoditized. But if we can become more customer-centric in terms of aligning ourselves with particular customers, making sure that the level of service we provide is unique, and we are more responsive at the same time, listening to their needs. Like I said, striving to be a contractor of choice, which is very, very difficult to do. I think that would be something very unique. Not a lot of contractors do that. Uh, not a lot of contractors have the ability to think through that because we're mostly busy surviving and uh, keeping the lights on. And that's the nature of the business today. But I think and we're able to give our customers a little bit more focus and be more customer-centric, building that level of trust and proximity with certain customers, I think that would be a very unique achievement. You spoke about analytics and data earlier on in, in our talk. Do you see that change in the game, both internally for companies as well as for customers? And how do you see that change in the game of being the contractor of choice? Oh, Absolutely. Data analytics in all aspects of our industry will be a definite game changer. If we're talking internally, we're talking about productivity analytics, we're talking about efficiency on the field, we're talking about efficiency of manpower, efficiency of equipment, efficiency of staff, the ability to make real-time decisions with, with real-time data feeds uh, from the fields and from the sites is definitely going to change the game. And a lot of companies are, are trying to do that uh, these days uh, by integrating their ERP systems um, and, and making sure they have all the sensors and, and all the data uh, collection points on the field that integrate seamlessly into dashboards and data analytics that would give feedback to leadership and management to be able to make efficient decisions. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely going to be a game changer. Um, as it pertains to customers, that also plays a very important game because once you master your own data, 
and you're able to leverage it in the right areas, you will be definitely able to serve your customers better. You'll be able to make timely decisions to improve your quality on the field, to, to anticipate issues and resolve them in a, in a more timely fashion. And all that would attribute to your reputation capital in the market, as well as your competitiveness. And, and combining both of these, you would be event, become eventually a contract of choice to your customers. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We really do hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you think that it delivered value to you, please share it with a friend who will appreciate it as well. Thanks.